I don't think I can say it the way John did, so I'll just say Happy Mother's Day. Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and during that time we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day that You've given us. May we make the most of it by concentrating on Your mighty Word. That we might gain strength and insight, power, things that we can't accomplish on our own, but indeed are at the ready for those who have studied to show their self approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. So we pray that you will help us this very morning to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to get back to the mothers in a moment, but first of all, um, <clears throat> we're going to talk about young people for a few moments. I received an article that came from Texas Homeschool Coalition Review, dated May 2010. The name of the article is, Where is Today's Culture Taking Our Youth? That's a good question, isn't it? It's by Job Martin. And I'm just going to read a few lines here or there. He says, Young people who are in their early 20s and younger are a generation named Mosaics by the Barner Research Group. These mosaics spend on an average eight and a half hours per day. Get that now. Eight and a half hours per day with various media sources isolating themselves from fellowship and relationships with real people as they become absorbed in the cold communication of one-on-one fun with uncaring electronic devices. Eight and a half hours. And we wonder why our young people can't communicate very well. Uh, they don't talk. Uh, they have always, uh, you know, something in their ear. Or eight and a half hours. That really floored me. But there's a few other things in here that also really got my attention. He said that Christian students need to be taught the extreme importance of filtering every part of their culture through the Christian worldview, asking themselves what the Bible says instead of how do I feel about it. Let me tell you, young people, I really don't care what you feel about the Bible. It's not about what you feel. He goes on to say that today's popular culture is designed to cause a disconnect between what the Bible says is true, honest, just, pure, loving, and of good report, and how we actually live our lives in the arena of daily life. We are being destroyed by a lack of knowledge. Anyone ever heard that before? Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. An interesting fact recently published by a Barna report states that of the current generation of older adults in America... One in nine still hold to a biblical worldview. One in nine. That was shocking. I thought, surely there'd be more than that. Now, this is their definition of a biblical worldview. Barnard defines the biblical worldview as follows. It's an, the belief in absolute moral truth that it actually exists. The Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles it teaches. Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic. A person can earn their, uh, cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to be good or to do good works. Jesus lived as a, sin, a sinless life on earth, and God is 
the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Now, that's very generic, isn't it? We're not talking about deep doctrines. So when he says that there's only one out of nine older adults in America that have a biblical worldview, that's shocking. But the next thing he said just blew my doors off. Y'all remember what that means? He says, but of the Mosaic generation, that would be those of 22 and younger, it says only one half of 1% embrace a biblical worldview. Can you imagine? One half of 1% in their survey demonstrated these young people know what's going on spiritually. Ken Ham and Britt Beamer's book, Already Gone, addresses how the current generation of young people is thinking. Already Gone is the result of a national scientific survey of 20 to 29-year-olds who grew up in church but no longer attend. The survey sought to find out why this massive dropout had occurred. The single biggest reason was that the church did not provide answers for them with which to defend their faith. Already Gone also shows that we are not losing most young people in college, which is where I thought it was taking place. But it says, but in middle schools and high schools. In other words, they're already gone by the time they reach high school for the most part. And then this next one is just, He says, most teenagers have abandoned the faith mentally even if they're still attending church. There are no doubt doubt millions of young people in churches today, and they're doing what I did when I was a young person. I went there to get a good hour's sleep, only it wasn't quite an hour. I stayed awake during the singing, which was half of it. And the other... 20 to 30 minutes, uh, I got a good nap. And in the church that I attended, at the end, they had an altar call, and everybody started kind of shuffling, and they started picking up the songbooks and so forth, and that's what woke me up. That's how I knew it was time for us to uh, come to an end of this uh, service. Now, continue with what they say. This is the reason it's crucial for our family Discipleship to occur daily in each home. Apologetics for Christianity and truth of the Bible need to be taught and molded for children from infancy so that they become a foundational reality in teenage thinking. In other words, you can't start too young. I know that Ty and Michelle are already uh, teaching little Adeline uh, scriptures. How old is she now? 19 months old. Good for you. Hammond Beamer's study also showed that young people who never attended Sunday school tested stronger on Bible questions than those who grew up attending Sunday school. What an indictment. And it says, what is the reason? The Bible is no longer taught as authoritative word. They are taught that the Bible is full of stories. I am so thankful that Country Bible Church is not part of that group. Young people who are in the junior class back there with Fabian are not being babysat. They are being taught doctrines, basic fundamental doctrines. So they are being prepared so when they come into this auditorium, they know what's going on. And I would tell you right now, I would stand most of the people, young people in our junior class up against most churchgoers, and I think they could hold their own if not be superior in biblical knowledge. The the Nehemiah Institute conducts worldview testing across different kinds of schools and has statistics from 1988 to 2008 demonstrating that Christian students in both public and traditional Christian schools are following the same downward trend 
in their worldviews. Christian homeschool students and students specifically taught biblical worldview thinking are the only ones who place in the biblical Christian category in this survey. Preparing our young children in such a way that they will not become negative statistics must start in the home with parents dedicated to the supporting, teaching, and modeling the truth of God's Word from in the beginning God created and practicing truth in home, in the home, is essential. Well, that got my attention. I tell you, that's worse than I thought it was, and I didn't think it was very good to begin with. You may have noted in your bulletin that I'm going to start teaching a junior class, young class for young people, on Wednesday, starting this Wednesday. It'll start at 6.30 and it'll last till 8. And I care enough for the young people to make this night just for them so that these statistics can start changing a bit. Rather than being impacted by the society, these young people can do the impacting. They are the ones that can stand for truth and quit being entertained and placated. And if I care enough for them to be here to teach them, you parents should care for them enough to get them here. So, we'll see how that one goes. We'll start this Wednesday. At 6.30. Now for you moms. (laughs) I didn't forget about you. Let's see what we got here. Today is Mother's Day, isn't it? I sure hope it is. Oh, okay. He already had it up. I'm looking for something that's already up. I did say Happy Mother's Day, didn't I? Okay, this is something that I thought that was... uh, I was just putting some thoughts together, and I thought, what is a good mother? And this is something that just came to mind. A good mother has terrific inner strength, yet is gentle. She works hard and gets dirty and still remains feminine. Femininity doesn't mean that, ooh, that's dirty. That's not femininity. I've seen women take a hold of a man's job with regards to building. One of them is sitting in our midst. She helped me build a log home. Swing a sledgehammer, carry the logs, and yet was feminine throughout that time. That's the key. She doesn't compete with her husband. She completes him. Compete, complete. One letter difference, L, and it makes a big difference. Women these days are competing with their husbands. I'm writing a a book that should be out hopefully very shortly that's going to deal with such issues. So uh, a good mother will complete her husband whether they compete with him. She teaches her children Bible doctrine and respect for authority. If parents don't teach their children respect for authority, I don't care what their grades are in school. I don't care how many extracurricular activities they may have. I don't care how many goals they may have scored or touchdowns or home runs. If they have not taught them respect for authority, they are failures. She gets a lot from 
from them, that would be her children, because she expects a lot. Do you ever think of that? You're going to get from your children what you expect from them. They receive praise when they deserve it, their children that is, discipline when they need it, and encouragement always. That's just a little nutshell snapshot of a good mother. I'd like everyone to turn, please, to Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Now, ladies, don't let those first two words in verse 3 throw you off. Some, some ladies can't get past the first two words. Older women. There's not an age put there, notice. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. That doesn't mean that they can't have wine. They're not to be enslaved to it. Teaching what is good. How about that? Older women are to teach. They're to be teachers and teach what is good. That they may encourage is what this translation says. So we're going to look at that When I have it underlined in this verse, I'm going to go to it and look at it a little closer. That they may encourage. Now, here's that phrase. The word encourage is sophronizo. S-O-P-H-R-O-N-I-Z-O. It means to train to think soundly. So there's training involved in this word. And... You get the, we'll see in a moment that the, the noun uh, sophron or sophron means to uh, be stable in your thinking. So the older uh, ladies, the older women, are to train someone, we'll see in a moment, it's the younger women, to think soundly. Now, this, that, the V there, after I have it in Greek, because we have some guys in here that read Greek, that's a verb and it's a P-A-S, that stands for a present active subjunctive. That means they're continue, they are to continue to train to think soundly. Not just do it one time, but it's a continuous thing. It goes on. They're responsible for doing it, the active voice. And the sub- subjunctive mood means it's only a potential. It can be only a potential because the older women have to know something to teach before they can teach it, don't they? And that is a potential. And also they have to have the young men, uh, young women have their ear that they're willing to be trained. So that's why we have the subjunctive mood there. So they are to encourage, train to think stably, to do this to the young women. And there is no age there either. Could be teenage years, could be younger, could be in their 20s. What are they to teach them? To train them. To love their husbands. There's a few surprising things about this. We'll look at this phrase. To love their husband is one word in the Greek. It's philandros. P-H-I-L-A-N-D-R-O-S. And it's not, a, it's not a verb there. It's an adjective. It's describing someone. And it's a compound word. It comes from the uh, word philos, meaning love. And andros means an honorable man, a husband, or maybe even a hero. You know what this is saying? It's saying the older women are to teach the younger women how to get ready to make their future husbands their hero. And you know how they do that? You know what is involved in this adjective? 
It's to train them. It, some people think, oh, to love. And they throw emotions in there. It's not about emotions. It's not about romance. It's about how do you, how do you interact, how do you live with someone that is aner? See, aner, is, this is not anthropos, which is just man. It comes from aner and andros has a, more of an honorable meaning to it, an honorable man. And the older women can teach the younger women. Now, look, when, you, when your hero comes, the one that you have made the decision to live with for the rest of your life, this is how you, this is how you live with him. This is what you do. You, it would involve things like teaching him how to cook. That's not as important these days since on every corner there's a fast food. But I guarantee you the husband would appreciate it if his wife knew how to cook. And I'm just not talking about opening a can of beans and chips and there you go. That's not cooking. To some guys it is. I'm talking about nutritious meals. It's hard to plan meals, isn't it? Half the problem is just, okay, it's going to mother, it's another week. What am I going to do? Am I going to be another time tomorrow? Well, what are we going to eat? Well, I don't know. What do you think? It takes timing and, and nutritious meals. Guess what? That has to be taught. It does not come naturally. What comes naturally is, well, let's go down to the jack in the box. It also has to do with making him feel and I said feel, that's right. Feeling isn't a bad word. We still have feelings. But you want to have him every single day. The, the, the young women have to be trained how to make their husbands feel special. And it's so foreign today because they're not being trained on, in any of these things. It used to be when they would come home. There used to be sitcoms. Uh, one of them was... Uh, Father knows best. Boy, would that... <laughs> can you imagine that being on TV today? Father knows best. No, father's a goon. He can't find himself. He's lucky to find his way home. That's the way he's presented today. But it used to be when father came home, they'd open the door, and there's the wife. And she doesn't have a moo-moo on. Is that what they are? My, my, moo-moo's those, you know, tent-looking things. And her hair got rollers in them, and the houses. No. She's, hello, darling, how was your day? Come on in, sit down, have some coffee. Would you like a piece of pie? If that happened today, the emergency rooms would be absolutely jammed because of so many heart attacks. The guys couldn't, they would think, they would just, they think they're at the wrong home. This is all has to be taught. Sound thinking. Well, dear, now, when your husband doesn't agree with you, what are you going to do? Well, isn't it 50-50? Oh, dear, we must talk. <laughs> you see, they have to be trained in all of this. And this is what the older women are to do. Then the next phrase is, uh, that was love their husbands. Now we have love their children. And here's the phrase here at the bottom. It's also one word in the Greek. It's philotetnos, uh, P-H-I-L-O-T-E-K-N-O-S. And it also is an adjective. See, it looks like it's a verb, but it's an adjective. Now, isn't this amazing that women need to be trained to love their children? It, doesn't that come normal, unnaturally? I mean... Have you ever, guys, I know guys notice this. I've gone to I don't know how many hospitals, and there's the little baby in there. Uh, they'll bring out, and do you want to hold it? Well, not especially, but, uh, you know, the women, oh, can I? And they give it to her, and they, oh, they're just making over it. And the guys are all saying, that's about the ugliest baby I've ever seen. <laughs> but this is talking about women. I think women have a natural inclination to love their babies, but this says they have to be trained to sound, to sound thinking about it. Because you cannot train young women to love their babies in the sense of 
uh, an emotional type of thing. It has nothing to do with emotions. It's saying, now, dear, when you have a child, they start to grow. And by the time they're two years old, you will be wondering if they are demon-possessed because they have what is called an old sin nature. Now, dear, you cannot placate this. You cannot uh, give them what they want and think they're going to love you all the more. you, You see the gist. And teaching them how to love, not just emotionally slobber all over them, That's just what came in my head. I'm sorry. And to be sensible. Guess what the word is here for sensible? Saffron. S-O-P-H-R-O-N. And it's an adjective also. It means to be sound-minded, temperate, self-disciplined. This is what good mothers do to their children, to their daughters. And I think that the, oh, this is written in the, in the context of a local church. And we have a wealth of older women here. Now, don't get angry. It's not about age, but it's about they have the knowledge, they have the doctrine to impart to younger women. And they would be, all the younger women would be wise to open their ears and learn. Oop. You're not supposed to see that yet. So, you, you mothers out there that are doing your job, I salute you. You are desperately needed in a society that has gone haywire. And there may be times when your children will detest you, think that you are the mother of all witches, if I can put it that way. But just keep on keeping on, and eventually they will come back and praise you. They will value, value you and your training more than you can ever know. So I encourage you and I salute you. So that is my little Mother's Day message. I have many more things here I was going to get to, but I just decided that we need to move on. I will give you a few verses that you might want to jot down, though, that you can check out for yourself with regards to mothers. What if you're a woman that can't have babies? What if you cannot become a mother? Psalm 113, verse 7 through 9. We have uh, in Luke chapter 11, verse 27 through 28, where um, motherhood is over-exaggerated, taken out of context. This is where our Lord was teaching, and the woman stood up and said, Blessed it be the, the womb that bore you in the breast who you sucked, and so forth. And Christ said, Wrong! This is he who learns the Word of God. So, I mean, we, we honor the mothers. But some people will think it's all about mothers. No, it's not all about mothers. And it's not all about fathers. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we must remember. And then you have in Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 18, a single mom. Are single moms just relegated to the ash heap of history? I mean, they're just done for? No. We have a woman that was a widow by the name of Zeruiah. And she reared three sons by the name of Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Fabulous guys. I mean, these guys were anything but mama's boys. If you know anything about these guys, you'd know uh, they were terrific guys. So, now we're going to press on. Are you all ready to switch gears? Let's see if I'm ready to switch. Uh, I'm kind of halfway afraid to bring something else up here, but I think I can manage. Okay. All right, we're going to go back now to the seventh floor of the divine domain, and we've been studying personal love for God. And last time we kind of 
introduced it and recognized that it's not so easy for uh, a finite, temporal person in a human body to love the infinite, eternal, and invisible God. And we saw that He always takes the initiative and enables us to do what we are not able to do on our own. And He has revealed Himself through nature, through His creation. He also has revealed Himself through His Word. And so we're going to pick up our study today where uh, we recognize that we can love because He has first loved us. He has always taken the initiative and He has revealed Himself in His Word. So get this. Our love for God is inseparably linked to our intake of His Word. You got that? In other words, and we have it on the front of your bulletin, I believe, your attitude towards God's Word is your attitude towards God. So if someone never cracks open the Bible, they never study, they never go to church, they never go to Bible class, they, they just have disconnected, and yet they say, oh, I just love Jesus. Well, in their mind they do, but you can't disassociate one from the other because God has revealed Himself in His Word and you can't know God unless you know His Word. And you can't love God unless you know Him. The way we know Him is through His Word. First John chapter 2, verse 5 says, But whoever guards His Word, truly in Him the love for God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. That was 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. Now, did you hear that? It was talking about guarding His Word. Guarding His Word. How do you guard His Word? It's, it's important to do because the rest of this verse says, Truly in Him the love of God has been perfected if you guard His Word. So how do you guard His Word? Well, you're doing it right now. Every day that you get your daily dose of doctrine, you're concentrating on the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. Filled with the Holy Spirit, listening to a prepared pastor teach. That is guarding the Word. Because if you don't do that, it's as if you're asleep at guard duty. What happens if you're asleep at guard duty? The enemy, the enemy can come in and do much harm, right? Who's the enemy? The world, the flesh, and the devil. All you have to do is think, well, I think I'll just take my spiritual transmission and just go into neutral for a while because I've, I've got a, a lot going on. I just can't take care of all of it. And I'm just going to put my spiritual life in neutral. And you find out what? There is no end. There is no neutral in your spiritual transmission. What you've actually done is grind the gears and now you're in reverse. Some people are hitting about 80 miles an hour in reverse before it ever dawns on them that they're in reverse. Because it's a slippery slide. It's gradual to start out with just a little bit and then you're gone. That's how you guard it. Then we have Jude chapter 21. Jude chapter 21 says... Keep yourselves... Turn to this one because I want you to write a little notation in there. Jude is the next to the last book of the Bible. We're in Jude 21. There's only one chapter in Jude. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. After the word keep, you may put this, these letters, if you can remember what they are. 
A-A-M means that that's the aorist active imperative. That's why it says keep yourselves. The active voice means you are the one to do it. No one else can keep you in the love of God. And it's an imperative mood, meaning it's a command. It's not a suggestion. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are commanded to keep yourselves in the love We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do you do that? How do you keep yourself in the love of God? Does this mean that, boy, you've got to be walking that straight or narrow? You better be good or else God's not going to love you anymore. Is that what it means? Of course, we have a, a, a God whose grace is greater than our sin. So it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you have to uh, be approved by God by your behavior. If we were approved by God by our behavior, we're in heap big trouble, aren't we? And I'm looking at a very pious crowd. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? We keep ourselves in the love of God the same way that we guard His Word. In fact, it's guarding His Word that keeps us in the love of God. He always loves us. It's not that we're not going to uh, be loved by God anymore. But to keep yourselves in the love of God means you have to keep on taking in His Word in order to not only survive, but be overcomers in the devil's world. It means to keep yourself in the love of God that you have a sense of appreciation for what God has done for you in the past, what He's doing for you now, and what He will do for you in the future. It means that you never doubt that God loves you. He loves you more than you love yourself. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. I want you to write right there where it says waiting anxiously and put above that P-S-E-D personal sense of eternal destiny. That's what we just came from the floor before that, before the one we're in now, was a personal sense of eternal destiny. And what we're now is waiting anxiously. You know, I didn't exegete this. I didn't look at the word for anxiously. But I very strongly suspect that that word is spudazzo. Y'all remember Spudazzo? Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. What does that mean? Do we have to wait till eternity to get eternal life? Is that what it means? No. We know it doesn't mean that. How do we know it? Because the Bible says something that clarifies that. Where? John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son, what? Let me hear it. Has, what? Eternal life. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, boom, you have it. You have eternal life. I think we all have to confess that we don't always feel like we have eternal life. I mean, our bodies especially feel like we have a gorilla on our back when we try to get out of bed or all the other things. It's not about feelings, but it's about the fact that eternal life is real, even though we actually don't need it right now in this sense. We are in a, a body that's still living. Our ticker's still ticking. We're still breathing. So we have physical life now. It's when the physical life ends that the eternal life kicks in. Now, I'm going to go to the to the things that I was going to go back to a while ago. 
I said, we love because God first loved us. He always took the initiative. First John chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. It says, you might want to go there, First John 4, 19 through 20. You were just in Jude, so all you have to do is go back just a little bit, and you'll see 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And it says what? We love because He first loved us. He always takes the initiative. If someone says, I love God but hate his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen is not able to love God whom he has not seen. So anytime you have hatred and animosity towards your brother, just think of it in terms, you're not loving God when you don't love them. You're you're required. We are commanded to love our brothers unconditionally, but we're not there yet. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that Yet while we were sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. While we were sinners. What did God do when Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they ran and hid themselves? What did He do? What would you have done? Good riddance. Huh? No, He went after them, didn't He? He said something very intriguing. Adam, where are you? <laughs> hmm. Did you really think he could hide from God? Get behind some bush? Uh-huh. Now I'm safe. He was thinking very clearly. He took fig leaves, fuzzy fig leaves, and made loincloths with it. <laughs> That's how clear he was thinking. But the point is, God saw him. Did he earn it or deserve it? No way. So God is always seeking us. Now, there has to be some clarification. This is where I'm going to bring this up, hopefully. Yeah, here it is. I guess you have to see it. Okay. This is a very profound statement. Love is not based on emotions. Our subject matter is loving God. And most of the people that you will ever come in contact with think that loving God is an emotion. In fact, they're so confused, they think loving their husband, loving their wife, loving their son, loving their daughter, loving their friends, loving anybody is all about emotions. It certainly is not. Feelings are not love. Feelings are not love. I'm so glad that feelings are not love because feelings, I should have put this there, just came Feelings are fickle. Everybody know what fickle means? I could even say if if feelings were uh, feelings are fickle, if that's what you got, you're in a pickle. <laughs> I always think of these things. Actually, I could have had that. See, that's been really neat. But don't look at me and think that your feelings aren't fickle. Because all of our feelings are fickle. Uh, we stand before a preacher or justice of the peace or someone, a, a man and a woman does, and they pledge for the rest of their lives fidelity and love and all the other great things than after the honeymoon, sometimes even during the honeymoon. If things are based on feelings, they're in a pickle. Love is based on trust, virtue, commitment, faithfulness, and character. 
And then, note, these are not emotions. These are not feelings. Why is this important when we're talking about loving God? Because most of the places that people go to worship God, not only in this country, but around the world, are based on an emotional type love. People are not taught the essence of God, His attributes, His plan, nothing else. They really don't know anything about God other than once a week they go to a place and it's pretty, everybody is nice, they smell good, and they crank up the music, and sometimes there's a a really emotional type of message. And they leave and they, oh, they feel so inspired. I am so close to God. (laughs) And then they go out in the parking lot and somebody opens their door into their car. And that all is, it's gone. Why? It was a feeling. It's gone. It's gone. You buy a new car. You drive it to church for the first time. And you're so proud. You just can't wait for everyone to come and ooh and ah over your great car. And you just had a great message. Oh, the music was wonderful. The sun was streaming in through the sunglass, stained glass windows. And you're just on cloud nine. You go out there and then there's that big dent. What happened? The rosy glow kind of fades. wasn't love to begin with. But now if they were in there being taught who God is, what we have in Christ, Unconditional love, all these different things. They go out there and they might not be, you know, they might be all energized, but they go out there and they see that and they say, uh huh, this is a test. They recognize it right off. They know it because their blood pressure just went, whoop. <laughs> Have you ever felt that? The temperature just goes, just rises. But because they've been trained properly, this is a test. I can actually pass this test. I know what to do. I've been trained. It has nothing whatsoever to do with feelings or emotions. And yet that person is demonstrating their love for God by learning and applying His Word. And that's how we do it. And not many people grasp that. I'm amazed. I really am amazed. We have nearly a full house again today. Do you know how rare that is in a doctrinal church? Most places you go to are dog and pony shows. And they think they have to give the people what they want. Some churches actually have Starbucks in the foyer. They do a canvassing of the area to find out what do you want in a church. And the people fill out the little questionnaires and then they give it to them. That's where the mega churches are for the most part. But you have a doctrinal... When I say doctrinal church, I'm talking about a church that relies on the Holy Spirit teaching believers the Word of God, training them. And sometimes it can be dry. Some say that I'm a little more animated than some. Some may think I'm too animated. I'm just who I am. Don't ever think that loving God is an emotion. Because when you're afraid, when you're in pain, it's not the emotions that will sustain you. It's what you have been taught about God. Sometimes we call them mechanics. You have to get answers to your questions and not a feel-good pat on the back. And it's really a shame that so many, so many churches are not, are not training their people. You, saw this, you heard the statistics that I started with today. That is absolutely shocking to me. One half of one percent of the young people 
22 and down, that age group, do not have a world, a biblical worldview. That means they've left God out of their life. What a tragedy. What a challenge for you mothers. Not only your mothers, the fathers also. We're focusing on mothers today. Grandmothers. I am so thankful that God is faithful, aren't you? If you want to know, really know who God is and how do you how to live a life that's pleasing to Him. He is always available. I'd like everyone please now to bow your heads and close your eyes. The reason I'm asking you to do that is so that you can have privacy. I don't know everyone here. There may be someone here that would agree what I'm saying with regards to the culture and how it's winning the cultural battles, but for you the real issue is what thank you of Christ. Lies, lies, and more lies is what you hear all around, but the truth of the matter is is that you can secure your eternal destiny in a moment, in this moment, simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God and He did go to the cross to pay for your sins. The sin issue is taken care of. He died, was buried, and now He is risen and offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for eternal life. And you can do it right now. You don't have to wonder if you're ever going to heaven. I did a a memorial service here yesterday and I said the same thing that I'm going to say now. And that is, you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. 1 John 5.13 says, These things are written to those who believe that they may know that they have eternal life. You can know it right now by simply accepting the free gift of salvation by trusting in Christ and His work rather than your own. Father, we're so thankful for this day that You've given us to come in obedience to Your Word, assembling ourselves together, the royal family of God, learning You, worshiping You in song through giving and through studying Your Word. And we're so thankful for those godly mothers, those who are holding the line, and they are training and teaching their young daughters and young women the things that are necessary in order to have the abundant life. We ask Your blessing upon them. And we pray these things in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.